Our scripture reading today is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 8 through 15. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You were to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The account opens with Jesus, uh, though he's never exactly called that in the story, somehow back and moving through the streets of Spain. Uh, He's spotted at the Seville Cathedral, uh, where he performs a miracle, almost exactly like uh, one recorded in the Gospels. He brings a young girl back to life. Uh, The crowds are amazed. Uh, They are in awe. And then, through the streets, uh, comes the Grand Inquisitor. And in a show of near total authority, uh, he has Jesus arrested. Once he has Jesus uh, in, a, in a cell, uh, the Grand Inquisitor comes to speak with him and tells him how his return is not appreciated, uh, how they actually have things under control and things are going better without him. Uh, it is one of the most famous and chilling uh, stories within a story, uh, the poem of the Grand Inquisitor uh, in Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Uh, I won't tell you how it ends uh, if you haven't read it, uh, no spoilers, um, but the Grand Inquisitor uh, in this long interaction with Jesus captured in the cell, he goes into uh, great detail about uh, how he and the church and the people are better off without Jesus, and uh, this is uh, a piece of what the Inquisitor says. They will bring to us all the most painful secrets of their conscience, all, and we shall have an answer for everything. And they will be glad to believe our answer, for it will save them from the great anxiety and terrible agony they endure at present in making a free decision for themselves. And all will be happy, all the millions of creatures, except the hundred thousand who rule over them, for only we who guard the mystery shall be unhappy. He goes on just a little while later and says, Know that I fear you not. Remember, this is the old priest talking to Jesus. Know that I fear you not. Know that I too have been in the wilderness. I too have lived on roots and locusts. I too prize the freedom with which you have blessed men. I too was striving to stand among your elect, among the strong and the powerful, thirsting to make up the number. But I awakened and would not serve madness. I turned back and joined the ranks of those who have corrected your work. I left the proud and went back to the humble for the happiness of the humble. What I say to you will come to pass, and our dominion will be built up. I repeat, tomorrow you shall see that obedient flock who at a sign from me will hasten to heap up the hot cinders about the pile on which I shall burn you for coming back to hinder us. 
Jesus is a disruption. <laughs> Jesus throws the balance off. Jesus cannot be controlled. Uh, Jesus is offering a freedom that seemingly cannot be managed. Jesus is right there in front of the old priest, proving that the stories are true, and yet the old man vehemently digs in. He hangs on to the reality of this other world that he has constructed. He is prepared again to execute Christ rather than to change, to remain in control, to have his story as he is writing it continue. A question Dostoevsky is putting to us, one of the questions he's putting to us in the story of the Grand Inquisitor is, how far would you be willing to go to uphold your normal, even if you knew it was based on a lie? How far would you be willing to go to uphold your normal, even if you knew it was based on a lie? On Easter morning in the Gospel accounts and, and what we just read a moment ago, there were two reports that went running away from the tomb on that Easter morning. First, the women, the text says, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. As well, though, we have the guards. The text says, While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. The women are in hopeful awe, that very human reaction we can imagine, afraid, uh, real life's crashing in, yet somehow filled with joy, somehow hopeful in awe. The guards are threatened, uh, they're, they're terrified. Maybe both groups are, are somewhat confused about what's going on, but both groups on some level know that their lives could be in real danger. Uh, the, the women, because they are associated with this traveling Galilean uh, uh, pre preacher teacher who's just been arrested and brutally executed, and why not? Why would the rulers not round up his followers and try to snuff the movement out completely? The guards, the guards know they have failed in the job that they were posted to do. Um, this was not like, oh, well, good try, fellas, you'll, you'll get them next time. Uh, they very well might be killed uh, for, for failing in this duty. So you see, they don't go back to their Roman military brothers, uh, certainly not first. No, they go to those, the chief priests and the elders, those who had hired them, to see if they can save their own skin. So running out of the garden tomb situation on Easter morning, the women and the guards, and they report to two different groups, first to the disciples and then to the elders and the chief priests. And kind of in an ironic twist, the disciples are the ones who doubt the report, uh, while the elders and the chief priests, they get right to work. They jump right into action. And uh, the string of cover-ups uh, that goes all the way back to the first garden and the fig leaves uh, goes on. You, you see it right away. They, they pay off the guards. Uh, they come up with an alternative story. Uh, they promise to vouch for them with, with, with the governor. And the conspiracy is set. Uh, it, it's clear whatever else is going on. Uh, to the elders, to the chief priests, to those who, who hear the guards report. What has really happened is not uh, the primary thing that is most important to them. Keeping things under control is. Keeping their position, keeping their power, keeping their story as they are writing it, keeping life as they know it. An author and a professor that I find myself imaginatively arguing with in my own head sometimes 
uh, is a man, David Dark. He wrote um, the, question, uh, the Sacredness of Questioning Everything. Uh, he wrote Everyday Apocalypse. Uh, he has a prolific Twitter feed. I don't always agree with David Dark, um, but he has a definition of sin that I often think about, and it came to my mind as I was uh, you know, hearing this guards report uh, from the Gospel of Matthew uh, again. He says, he likes to say, sin is an active flight from a lived realization of available data. I love that. Um, I don't think it works as the only definition of sin, um, but it is right um, in that we are in real danger when we have discovered something to be true, but we refuse it or reject it and won't act on it because it doesn't fit into the world that we have made it, or the control that we're longing for, that we are in, in trouble if we find ourselves unwilling to entertain new possibilities if they do not fit into the neatly constructed world that we have made. Sin is an active flight from a lived realization of available data. And perhaps this is the very thing that, that Christians often get a, a, accused of, ignoring reality some, for some fantasy of faith. But I think the story of the guards report, um, and many like it, actually show the leap of faith that is required at times to remain in unbelief. <laughs> My cards are on the table. This is probably, a, here I am recording uh, a sermon, give, giving a sermon. Um, I believe Jesus rose from the grave on Easter morning. I believe that it is uh, the climactic moment in the greatest story ever to told. I believe that, um, that Jesus coming out of the tomb is not just a powerful metaphor or symbol. I believe that it is a historical fact and that there is tons of evidence to support it. Um, if you're someone who th that's really important to, I can point you in a lot, lots of directions to, to sort of dig into that yourself. A great place to start would be uh, Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. Uh, has a ton of the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But not just that, not just believing in a historical fact that happened you know, 2,000 years ago. I, I also believe that I have had 25 years worth of experience with this Jesus in really meaningful, deep, soul level, uh, every level of my life inter interaction. I've experienced guidance. I've experienced love. I've experienced forgiveness. I've experienced change. I've experienced real freedom from things that bogged me down and trapped me mentally that were physical addictions. I've, I've experienced... I've experienced this Jesus who walked out of the tomb not as an idea or, or as a symbol or something that I can believe in way off, but also as a person who on a regular basis I, I sense an embrace from, I sense uh, love in a real powerful near way that has led me into community, has led me into service, has led me to even participate in the things uh, that he is doing in the world. At the same time, I've talked to many, many non-believers who, who don't have, have a faith you know, currently in their life, but they do say there was a time where I did sense God moving in my life in some way. I also know many longtime believers uh, who don't believe anymore, and part of the reason they don't believe anymore is they weren't feeling it. They weren't sensing it as, as strongly as they longed to. But I think the story of the guards report is important. It's maybe not one that we meditate on very much, but I think it's important to remind us that we have to be aware of, or at least <laughs> we have to be honest that we might be unaware of, of the power that our world system has over us, the power of the social constructs that we live within and how they can affect our reasoning, our decision-making, how we process new information coming into our minds, into our stories. There was an article uh, in The New Yorker back in 2017 uh, by, by Elizabeth uh, Colbert. 
It's so hard not to say Colbert there, but uh, Elizabeth Colbert. And the article is entitled, Why Facts Don't Change Our Minds. And there's a lot of interesting research referenced in the article. Uh, but one of the ideas put forth is that however impartial that we might imagine ourselves to be, uh, our powerful capacity for reason as human beings is not the only thing that shapes uh, what arguments we agree with or what premises uh, we base our lives on. As a matter of fact, in, in, my, in life's most important and complex decisions, we rarely just look at the facts and make a decision. There is a strong social component to our thinking. Uh, confirmation bias is just one of the examples given in the article and the research around it. Uh, this phenomenon that we can observe, it begins to demonstrate that we often make choices not just based on the facts, but based on what those choices, what that set of conclusions will mean for us socially. Will, will it uh, ingratiate and ingrain us more in our community? Will it lead us away and outside of our community? Uh, this is an important factor in how we how we think about new information and new parts of of of, of the human story that come into our consciousness. N.T. Wright uh, observes this dynamic is not a new phenomenon. It's it's always been at play. You see it here in the Gospels. He says, uh, I think this is really helpful. Denying the resurrection left everybody's worldview intact. The Jews could continue as they had done. The Romans could go on running the world their way. Philosophers could still debate their lofty doctrines. Nobody would need to make radical readjustments. But if the resurrection of Jesus was true, and if people were to start reordering their lives by it, they would be on a collision course with the rest of the world. There would be some cost associated with reorienting our lives around this Galilean teacher who suddenly had now been executed in public and then walked out of the grave, claiming, as we would later come to understand, to be beginning a whole new way of being human, a whole new way of relating to God. Seeing phenomenon alone is rarely enough. The first few witnesses of the resurrection, right? Only a few people were there as witnesses to what happened at the tomb in that garden place. And, and they ran from that place and several of them, we'll say half, at least half of those who witnessed the resurrection were willing to take a payout to say that it didn't happen. We have to be aware, or at least we have to be honest that we sometimes are unaware of the power our world system has over us, the power of the social constructs we live within. Some of you may have seen an article that's uh, been passed around uh, in the past few days uh, by a filmmaker, uh, Julio Vincent Gambudo. Uh, it is called Prepare for the Ultimate Gaslighting. And um, if you haven't read it, the author is predicting some of what it is going to feel like in our country uh, in, in the days to come when the quarantines begin to lift and and uh, his premise is that we are about to uh, undergo the greatest campaign to get back to regular life uh, that some of us have ever experienced, that many of us, all of us will say, have ever experienced. And before we accept that, before we accept this great campaign to get back to normal, that we should ask some hard questions of ourselves. He does, I think he does pretty well to acknowledge the horror and the loss of life of this virus, but he also uh, makes some other observations that I think many of us can relate to. I, I'll just read you a little uh, of what he says here. What this crisis has given us 
is a once-in-a-lifetime chance to see ourselves and our country in the plainest of views. At no other time ever in our lives have we gotten the opportunity to see what would happen if the world simply stopped. Here it is. We're in it. Stores are closed. Restaurants are empty. Streets and six-lane highways are barren. Even the planet itself is rattling less. True story. And because it is rarer than rare, it has brought to light all the beautiful and painful truths of how we live. And that feels weird, really weird, because it has never happened before. If we want to create a better country and a better world for our kids, if we want to make sure we are even sustainable as a nation and as a democracy, we have to pay attention to how we feel right now. I cannot speak for you, but I imagine you feel like I do, devastated, depressed, and heartbroken. A little while later in the article, he goes on to say, Get ready, my friends. What is about to be unleashed on American society will be the greatest campaign ever created to get you to feel normal again. It will come from brands. It will come from government. It will even come from each other. It will come from the left and from the right. We will do anything, spend anything, believe anything, just so we can take away how horribly uncomfortable all of this feels. It will be funded like no other operation in our lifetimes. It will be fast, it will be furious, and it will be overwhelming. The great American return to normal is coming. From one citizen to another, I beg of you, take a deep breath, ignore the deafening noise, and think deeply about what you want to put back into your life. I think that is a helpful question. I think that it is one of the questions that Easter asked us to ask of ourselves, our communities, our families, our own hearts. Easter is a moment where Jesus walking out of the tomb invites us to reevaluate everything, but also this unbelievable convergence that we are in. This moment in history is a time like no other that we've lived through, and it is offering us also a reevaluation moment. What are we going to order and shape our lives around? What are we going to do with this opportunity? Once so much of our normal has been stripped away, what are we going to allow back into our lives? Will we cling to our old power structures and coping mechanisms and busyness? Will we wear that again as a badge of honor in just a few weeks or months? Will we say, I have trust in God, but actually live as if we really only trust ourselves? What if the guards had left with the women? What if, if they had said, what has happened here? Who is this man? Can you imagine the humility of that, the risk that would have taken? But they might have met him just outside the edge of the garden, the way the women had. Matthew records it. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will see me. What if the guards had been there for that moment? What if saving their own skin in that moment wasn't the first thing they thought of, but making sense of the reality of this earthquake and this tomb and the rolled away stone and what they had seen and the possibilities that, that, that it meant for them, that it meant for the world? What if that was somehow overriding their, 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 their the concerns they knew they should have been thinking about? I love that encounter, that brief moment uh, as the women encounter Jesus I think in this moment we have a small picture, a microcosm of what salvation is. 
Jesus met them greetings, he says, right? That's what happens to us is we are, we are welcomed in. Our, our name is called. We, we, we hear, 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 hear love. We hear an embrace. They're brought in. So there's this moment where, where we embrace Jesus and, and he embraces us. And then from the greetings, it's do not be afraid, right? The, almost the most repeated statement in the whole New Testament, certainly in the resurrection accounts, do not be afraid. Jesus' peace becomes our peace. This is what happens in salvation. We're embraced, and then what's true about Jesus becomes true about us. And then he sends them on to join in his mission of love, to join in his announcement of hope, to join in his announcement that a new world is beginning, that resurrection has begun. Go and tell my brothers they are sent on a mission of love. They're welcomed in. They're given an embrace. His peace becomes their, uh, their peace, and they are sent on a mission of love. That's what our salvation looks like. The story is repeated with different details in all of our lives uh, who have embraced and been embraced by Christ. We have to be aware of, or at least we have to be honest that we might be unaware of the power that our world system has over us. Our social constructs, our, our patterns of thinking, our, our habits of consumerism, our habits of comfort and convenience, the idols that so quickly uh, climb back onto the throne of our hearts, and yet the power of the resurrection, the power of Easter morning, is that those things don't have to dominate in us, us anymore, that we can come into this embrace, be welcomed into the very life of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, be welcomed into the lives of one another in a new way, and truly be this picture of humanity, this picture of of the kingdom that came out of the tomb on Easter morning as, as a foretaste and is spreading throughout the world. The resurrection of Jesus has changed the world and it can change us again today. So my question that I think the guards report puts to us is, what are you holding on to in this time of your life that it is time to let go of? The Easter story, this historic moment that we are in, is inviting you to reevaluate what is God inviting you to, to let go of? What do you know in your heart, in your conscience, that it's time to say, enough? I can lay this down. I can let this go. Will you embrace and receive from Christ today? Will you allow Him to, to greet you, to hold you, to let His peace become your peace, to send you uh, with a, sh a full share in His mission of love into the world to tell others, to be a demonstration of His love and action, to be his hands and feet. That is our, our beautiful calling as sons and daughters of the resurrection. As we said last week, to leave a string of empty tombs in our wake. What a beautiful calling. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I, I pray in the name of Jesus uh, that you would bring freedom. I, Lord, as we are preparing to uh, share, share this message, Lord, came into my mind a picture from that art article in 2017 of um, a person whose who's, um, head has ropes around it that are tied to anchors at the bottom so the person can't lift their head and there's just there's a, um, a sense of slavery attached to certain types of thinking that we can't break free from. And I just pray in the name of Jesus right now for anyone who's holding on to something that they need to let go of or they need to be set free from, I pray by your Holy Spirit you would do the ministry of freedom to them. Lord, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead would be at work in those who are hearing this right now. And you might, you might help make many free in Christ in this moment. God, I pray you would show us the things that we need to let go of, uh, 
I pray that we could uh, experience your embrace today and join in your mission of love. I thank you for uh, these stories of resurrection, God. Even as we are stuck in place, uh, uh, may, may we be a resurrection people. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to begin preparing your hearts in just a moment. We are going to receive the meal together and take communion. Church, our exploration of the word leads us back again and again to the person of Jesus. And we, just like the women leaving the tomb on that Easter morning, can experience an embrace of Christ this morning, can return again to him, can be nourished by his, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Uh, let's prepare our hearts. The apostle wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are proclaiming the Lord's death as our, as our salvation hope. But we are also looking for his return, which means he is resurrected, he is alive. And Easter is bursting forth from this meal. So as you receive this meal, also receive the embrace of Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray over your church, all those who trust in Christ, who have been embraced by Jesus, who have received his peace. I pray again that we would receive and be nourished by your peace this morning in this meal. I pray over the bread and over the cup. Nourish us, strengthen us, encourage us as we share this meal together. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, as you are ready, uh, let us receive uh, the body of Christ, and the blood of Christ. Amen.